Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you have your Bible open to Exodus chapter 33, you jump in the swimming pool, what happens? You get wet, right? It's because water is wet. It's the way water is. God, in all that he is, is glorious. That's who he is. His faithfulness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his wrath, all the qualities of who God is, can be summed up in the fact that he is glorious. Glorious beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension, what we could even think of is his glory. Exodus chapters 33 and 34 provide us insight into a conversation that happens between Moses and God after the golden calf incident of chapter 32 where Aaron made that golden calf Uh, at the request of the people um, from the gold that God had provided for them from the Egyptians. And they ascribed God's name to that golden calf in worship. And so God was hot. He was uh, lots of things toward them, ready to wipe them out and start over with Moses. Um, And God uh, heard the cry and the plea of Moses as he interceded for the people He relented from that, but at the end of chapter 32, he inflicted them with a plague, um, and that's where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 33. So if you would stand with me as I read the first four verses this morning from Exodus 34. The Lord spoke to Moses, go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray you would help us to understand what you are communicating to us through your truth. Lord, help us to understand the importance of your presence in our life. Help us to understand and grasp how in Christ that Jesus is the glory of God. Help us to look to him to see that glory. Father, what we are not, I pray you would make us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We'll just ask you a simple question. They'll carry us for some time this morning about your desperateness for God's presence. Are you desperate for God's presence? Or 
Are you at a place where you're content to depend on yourself? There are many times where we might answer, yes, I'm desperate for God's presence, but we'll live and go on about our day in a totally different way than depending on the presence of God. When we read this dialogue between Moses and the Lord, the initial response of their continued dialogue seems to be positive. The Lord spoke to Moses again in verse 1, Go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land that I promised. We see God keeping his promise that he's going to continue, even though they've sinned in a major way, ascribing to the Lord uh, the Lord's name to a golden calf, worshiping, giving their love, their affection, their worship to a golden calf that was not God, um, looking to that golden calf to lead them forward to the promised land as they requested of Aaron. Even though they did that, God is still going to send them forward to that promised land. He is a God who keeps his promises. You'll notice he references that to the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. God's going to keep his promises even though they had turned their back. But we get to verse 3, and this is where the hammer falls. Actually, verse 2, it starts. He says, I will send an angel ahead of you. That should have been a, wait a minute, a a what? An angel ahead of you. I'm going to send an angel. He's still going to provide the promised land. He's still going to send his angel down to clear out the people that are already there, and this land is going to be theirs. Um, He references again the land flowing with milk and honey. No more need for manna. No more need for daily collections. No more need for water coming out of the rocks. It's going to happen. It's going to be there for you. Everything. The land is going to be plentiful. You're going to have everything you need in this beautiful land that I've promised to you. But then the hammer falls in in the middle of verse 3 when he says, But I will not go up with you. I will not go up with you. Why? He says, one, because you're a stiff-necked people. And if I go, I might try to destroy you on the way. Let's remember all that had been going on up to this point. We go back to the beginning of Exodus. They're delivered. They're in slavery. God had calls Moses. He, Moses, he uses Moses to bring them out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea, We've got, uh, skipped over the plagues there, but that was obviously a huge part. But we've got the splitting of the Red Sea, the people walking through on dry ground. We've got provision of manna and quail and water. And more than anything, God had given Moses instructions on how the people of God are to relate to God himself. That's the Ten Commandments and, and, the, and the setting up of the tabernacle, the instructions that God had given Moses on how they are to, to worship in this place, this tabernacle, how they are to worship and meet with God. And all that while, he's up there talking to God, hearing what God is saying, receiving the law, receiving all of these parameters for worship. All that while, the people are down below the mountain worshiping a golden cow. This was going to be the golden, uh, excuse me, this was going to be the, the place of worship. The dwelling place of God was this tabernacle that Moses had received, all the little different parts of it, his, and putting them together. This was going to be God's place where God's people could worship him, centered in the camp and amongst the camp. And yet now he's saying, I will not go with you. Let me ask you that question again. Do you sense the need for God's presence in your life? Are you desperate for more of God's presence in your life? How often do you acknowledge God's presence in your life? Friends, we have a need that we cannot overlook. 
Some of us will turn to him when we're in trouble and not and ignore him the rest of the time, right? Hoping that he's up there blessing us, but we're not seeking that presence in our life. We'll turn away when we're not in trouble, but when we get in trouble, we're immediately asking for help to get out of trouble. That, I mean, that's what we do. We want to ask for help when we're in trouble, but perhaps while we're walking with him and his presence is daily every day, we're spending time with him, growing in and, and grace and, and the knowledge of our Lord, we're avoiding some of that trouble that we normally will get into of our own. But when we look at verse 5, we see what God continues to say to Moses. He says, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. There's a, there's a hint of God's grace here. By him not going, they're going to get to continue on. If he goes with them, he's going to bring the wrath because they're a stiff-necked people. It's stiff-necked. They're not listening to him. They're not obeying his commands. All right? What a moment that is. I'm not going to go with you because I would destroy you. If you were to get closer to our sun, the closer you get, the hotter it's gonna be, and pretty quick, you're gonna burn up because of the heat of the sun. That's similar to how God's holiness works. Our God is so pure and perfect and holy that my sin, your sin, all of our impurity that comes into his presence is burned up. The Bible calls him a consuming fire. He is that holy. Our, our sin would be destroyed before him. In fact, as Isaiah, when he is in the presence of God in that vision of Isaiah chapter 6, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why is he ruined? Because he acknowledges and he realizes in the presence of the holiness of God, he is a man of unclean lips. Well, what comes out of our lips comes from our heart. He's a man of sin. And he says, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Here I am in the presence, the holy presence of God. I am ruined. Israel's sin of false worship and idolatry, worshiping, using God's name in vain in an act of worship. We see here that I'm not going with you because... I would destroy you. Why? Because our sin is repugnant when compared to the holiness of God. But even in this moment, Israel is getting the benefit of God's promise. They're still going to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. An angel of the Lord is going to go, sent by him, and he's going to drive out the people from the land. I've used this illustration a lot, but this is like drinking a, a, a Diet Coke. All the flavor and none of the calories. At least that's the promise, right? This is like God Zero, if you will, or Diet God. All the taste, all the benefits of his promise, the promised land, but none of the blessings of God. None of the, the extra things that come with his presence. Like, like, who doesn't want God's forgiveness, who doesn't want rescue from hell or protection and provision and position and good health and good wealth and all those things? But when it comes down to it, you know, we even ask God to bless our plans that we didn't really ever include him on, but we just ask, oh, bless our plans, bless, you know, bless this, bless that. We want that. But when we start thinking about the demands that his presence in our life would bring, it brings holiness, Righteousness, 
It brings a transformation of our heart and our mind. No longer are we loving the world with all that we are. Now we are loving God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And in Christ, we, we understand that it is God's will for sanctification that it comes in to our life, and he's starting to make us into the image, into the likeness of his son. And in Christ, we are called to be holy, and we're called to pursue holiness. And we should know that transformation is on its way, if not a daily adventure that God takes us in to transform us into Christ-likeness. And if you think for a moment you don't need to undergo that transformation or you don't need sanctification to happen in your life, then you're sadly mistaken. Paul calls us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he calls the church to says, do not be conformed to this age. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not be conformed to all the things that are not Christ, all the things that are anti-Christ, everything that is anti-God, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, because outside of Christ... You will not know the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. Only when we're in Christ by his grace. Sometimes we might come to him and think, yeah, he better answer my prayers. He better answer my requests. He better do it the way I want, or else we're going to label him as uncaring, uninterested, and distant. We don't understand the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. The people of Israel and Moses They respond in a very appropriate way in verse four when they heard the bad news. That's bad news to know that God's presence isn't going with you. The bad news, what did they do? They mourned. They didn't put on that jewelry that had been used to make the golden calf. They're broken. They're, they're, They're mourning over the fact that God's presence will not go with them. In verses seven through 11, it's kind of a, a glimpse as to what it looked like for Moses when he would meet with God. Verse seven, Moses, it says, took the tent and pitched it outside the camp at a distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. That tent of meeting was normally in a, in a centralized location. So when Moses would go, people could see that he was going to be with God and, and Joshua would be close by, but notice that it's been moved outside of the camp. So no longer will it be the center of worship for the camp, but now they will have to worship and see that happen from a distance. Moses is going to plead to God corporately for his people. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you, so that I may find favor with you. Now, consider this nation your people. He's pleading for God's presence. What Moses is saying is, God, we don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes. Lord, teach us your ways so that we will know you. Consider this nation that you called out. Consider them your people. God, we don't have what it takes. Coastal Oaks Church, we don't have what it takes without the presence of God. We can't know more of God without the presence of God. We can't know his ways without the presence of God. Jesus said it to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse five, when he said, I am the branches, you 
he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me, the one who abides in me, the one who stays in my presence, and I in him will produce much fruit. And then he says this, listen, because you can do nothing without me. I get a sense that Moses understands that at this point. I think he's getting this. We can't do this without you. Consider this this people your people, this, this people your your nation. Now look at God's response in verse 14. He replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. You don't really get this in the English very well, but in the Hebrew, when he says, I will go with you, he's not talking about Israel. He's talking directly to Moses. Moses, I will go with you. He's not including the people. I will go with you, Moses. I will give you, Moses, Rest. Moses comes back with verse 15. If your presence does not go, don't make us go from here. Please go with us. Lord, we can't do this without you. Friends, God's presence is what made Israel so different than the rest of of the people groups and nations around them. Without the presence of the great I am, they simply are not. They are not any different. Verse 16 makes that abundantly clear to us. He says, how will it be known, this is still Moses, how will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. God has chosen a people to make his name, to make himself and his name known amongst the nations. Today, that's us, the church. But at this point, it's Israel. How will they know unless you go with us? It is God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. His presence that makes us God's people. It's not the other way around. We don't make his godness greater than or less than because we don't show up to worship him. He is God regardless. Just like water is wet, he is God. And he will always be God and he will always be glorious. But you are not God's people without his presence in your life. That only happens, beloved, through trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life and surrendering and yielding yourself to him. Yes, We can receive forgiveness of sin. That's what's needed. We get heaven. Hallelujah. We get to spend eternity in heaven. But the glory of the cross, it's been said, the glory of the cross of Christ is that we get God. That's the prize. That's the glorious end. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Other translations will put the word confidence. Let us come to him with boldness and confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Without Christ, we're coming to the throne trembling. But in Christ, we come with boldness in Christ because he is our intercessor now. But without God, 
Notice they won't be distinguished from the other people. How will the nations know? How will they hear? That's the goal. God's choosing a people. How will they hear without the people, without his presence with the people? Lord, we cannot live a day without you needs to be our cry. Every day when we wake up, we, we ought to be saying, Lord, I cannot do this day without you. I need you to go before me into the office, into the pasture, out into the factory, into the refinery, out on my boat, wherever you're going that day. You got to be praying, God, I can't do this without you. I need your presence today. Go before me. Set your heart on the pursuit of knowing God because that is the blessing. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians chapter three. He said, everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. All the worldly things that Paul had worked for, his upbringing as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a Pharisee, as a highly educated man, all the things that he pursued, all the achievements of Judaism that he strived for and that he lived for and thought that would make God happy with his life. Everything that he thought was gain is now a loss because of Christ. More than that, he says, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Now here is his goal. My goal is to know him. Isn't that interesting? Here is Paul, an apostle, the author of half the New Testament letters. I mean, and here he is the one saying, my goal is to know him. The one who met him on the road to Damascus when he lost his sight because of the glory of Christ in his midst calling him out, why are you persecuting? That Paul still wants to know him more? My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead, that he would know Christ. Friends, set your heart, set it in your heart, the pursuit of God, because knowing him is the blessing. And it starts with a relationship in Jesus Christ. Chapter 34, excuse me, chapter 33, verse 17, God answers Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. And then what Moses says next, Spurgeon has said it was the most audacious claim <laughs> and question ever asked of God by a human being. Moses said in verse 18, please let me see your glory. Let me see your glory. In response to that request, God offers two things, a yes and a no. Moses is going to get a glimpse of his glory and his goodness, but not all of it. Somewhere back there in the back of my head is Jack Nicholson saying, you can't handle the truth. He can't. That's why Isaiah cried out, I am ruined. He knew what would happen. That protection is for Moses. If Moses saw it all, Moses is going to die. He literally can't handle what he's asking to see. 
For Isaiah, God stepped in and intervened as a seraphim flew over with a burning coal from the fire and touched his lips and cleansed him so he could remain in that moment. But one, one fellow put it this way, Moses is going to see who God is, not what he looks like. When we say we want to be in the presence of God, we want to know more of who he is, not what he looks like. We're not, we can't make an image of God and what he looks like. We don't know. We couldn't handle it if we did, no. But then also God says, I'm going to proclaim my name before you. I am who I am. I'm going to preach it. I'm going to proclaim it. And in doing so, God set once again in place his sovereignty in this gracious moment. He says that actually happens um, down in verse 6 of chapter 34. As Moses is getting two new stones cut in place, we find this in verse 6. It's very important, uh, verses 6 and 7. They're, they're quoted very often. It's one of the most important uh, uh, passages right here uh, for all of the Old Testament. We'll hear this. He says, the Lord passed in front of him, okay, and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Friends, there is mercy in this name that I am who I am. That God would come in this moment and proclaim his name to Moses. That there's humility for the best of saints. There's hope for the worst of sinners. Help for the cause of missions. Worship for the name of God. If you're in need of compassion, you hear that? The Lord is compassionate. If, if you can't measure up, he's gracious. If, if you're rebellious, God is slow to anger. If you're unfaithful, it's a good thing that he is faithful and loyal. If you're guilty, he promises forgiveness. Unrepentant, there's coming a time for you too. It's called his justice. And yet with this proclamation, here Moses is kneeling to the ground and worshiping the Lord. That's the way we respond to the presence and glory of God. If you continue on through Exodus 34, God sets in place or reestablishes the two stone tablets. It's a summation of the Ten Commandments and some of the orders that he had put in about worship and how we relate to him. And when the time came for Moses to come off the mountain, this time the people aren't partying. They're waiting for him. But you'll notice later on, he says his face is radiant. Verse 29, Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony. In his hands as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him, but Moses called out to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Friends, transformation happens when you spend time with God. This is why we need to long for his presence daily because the transformation that Paul talks about, about not being conformed to this age but being transformed by the renewing of your mind happens when we spend time with God. 
His glory is transforming. Moses is the only one who's experienced it at this point. But, but listen, listen to what John says about Jesus in his gospel, the opening chapter. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. We observed his glory, the glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God has revealed in his Son, Jesus Christ, his glory. Friends, what we look at matters. Pursuing the presence of God, pursuing holiness, pursuing his glory, it matters. Moses asked to see God's glory. He caught a glimpse of it. And his face is radiating that glory, and he doesn't even know it. When you spend time with God, do people know it? Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you looking to? What are you looking for? Long for the presence of God and for his glory. Notice that the scripture didn't say he was radiating God's glory because he saw it, but because he had spoken with God. He heard God speak God's name. He heard him say one more time, the I am is compassionate, slow to anger, merciful. He heard God. He heard the proclamation of God. Friend, the the glory of God is still in this gospel message. When we open the word of God, this is why the gospel and his word is so important. Friends, this is not a book of social change. It is not a message of cultural change. It's not a political message. It's not a a message of social justice. This is the word of God. And when we spend time with him in his word, we come away radiating his glory and and, and our life is transformed. Our lives begin to change day by day. It is a message that proclaims we are great sinners in need of a greater savior. And that savior's name is Jesus Christ. And by God's plan, he suffered and died on the cross as the substitute and payment for our sins. And that While on the cross, he cried out to his father, it is finished, paid in full. That ransom was paid. And now on the third day, God raised him from the dead so that all who believe and call on the name that is above every name might be saved, will be saved. As we lost sinners trust in Jesus God brings us into this process whereby we are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. That image is the image and the likeness of Christ Jesus himself. Please don't ever answer that you have enough of God's presence and that you have enough of his glory and you don't need any more for today. This is but a small glimpse now, but then we will fully know. 
and fully see all he was, is, and will ever be. That he is and was the lamb slain for our sin. And that he is the Lion of Judah, that he is the Son of God, that he is King Jesus, seated on his throne forever and ever. Amen. So as we wrap up this morning, would it be your prayer? Lord, as I walk out the doors to face my week ahead of me, would you please go with me? Don't check your heart at the door. We walk into our mission field as we leave. Lord, show us your glory in Christ Jesus, that we may radiate that glory to our family, our friends, our neighbors, whose hearts are veiled to the truth.